you know, to get anywhere in life is just be a good person, you know, make the right friends. And then you got to really pick your life philosophy. Like I've really from day one pretty much picked that I wanted to do the things that were going to make me happy. And then hopefully monetarily that would work itself out. I want to be my current self from this point forward. I want to learn how to play piano. Working with human beings. Drinking wine in the middle of the day. I want to be a I'm going to be the next greatest painter. Just kind of work with kids, getting them ahead in life. I want to be a welder. I want to be a beach bum. I want to be a baseball player. Brewmaster. A winemaker. Professional snuggler. Let me mention those sweet, hot lavender baths and writing in the evening. What's up, everybody? This is Blake Fletcher, the Half Hour Intern. In today's episode, I interview Casey Badger about, and I think this might dethrone the cat behavior consultant for possibly the, the strangest career ever. Uh, he is both a professional BMX rider and a professional fisherman. So I don't really want to give anything away or spoil anything. So I'll, I'll leave everything to the actual episode. But I just want to say it's so interesting because I met someone last week and they were asking me about the show and they were asking about what kind of the weirdest or most interesting, shocking person that I ever interviewed was. And I was saying that it, it's so funny that when you start actually talking to someone about how they got into what they did or or, or whatever it is that that happened in their life, everything just seems so normal and it just makes total sense. So as soon as you hear the story, it no longer can really be shocking or strange or weird anymore, which I think is really nice and really inspiring. Um, I, to me, that kind of means that however big or audacious um, or crazy your goal for your life might seem, you know, if you just put one foot in front of the other, like Casey does throughout his life, you just end up at your destination. It doesn't seem so crazy after all. So without further ado, here is professional BMX rider, professional fisherman. Casey, welcome to the show, man. Thanks so much for joining me. Uh, thanks for having me. Absolutely. So a uh, little background for everyone. A mutual friend of ours uh, lives out in Phoenix, Arizona, which is where you live. And he's actually the guy that designed my logo. And when we were going back and forth in conversations while he was designing my logo for me, he was like, man, like I really like the show and blah, blah, blah. Uh, so you're looking for people with like interesting jobs, right? And I was like, yeah. He's like, well, let me try to think if I, like he couldn't think of it right away. He's like, let me try to think if I know anybody that has an interesting job. And then he called me back the next day. He's like, oh yeah, I totally know someone that's pretty interesting. I don't know if you want to interview him. He's a professional BMXer and also is basically now a professional fisherman as well. I was like, you have got to be kidding me, dude. That, that is like probably the most interesting person I'm ever going to interview in my entire life. So I am so excited for this. You pretty much instantly became my hero when he, uh, he told me about you. Um, cause it sounds like, you know, you just really chose the things that you wanted to do in your life, which, you know, is kind of what this show is all about. So I'm really excited to learn more about you and what you've been doing. Awesome. I guess I have pretty, uh, big shoes to fill when you put in words like that <laughs> definitely as, no it pressure. might not be as cool as you think it is <laughs> yeah yeah we'll see about that so i i guess we should probably start chronologically so you um were doing bmx before you were fishing so at what age did you start not riding a bike but at what age did you start really getting serious about bmx um i was eight years old when i started racing bmx so i have a pretty cliche story of why i started and it's you know Basically, everybody from my generation watched the movie Red, and that was basically like the turning point. And I have a handful of friends that have the same exact story. It's just like, 
were at the movie theater, or not the movie theater, the like Blockbuster or whatever one night, and I saw it and it had a bike on it, and I made my dad rent it, and we went home and watched it, and I was like, I have to do this. So my <laughs> dad was pretty rad, and you know, like I rode bikes around, and I had a dirt bike. I got a dirt bike when I turned four, but you know, feasibility when you're a little kid is you can't just go ride your dirt bike all the time. So you know, I rode my BMX bike around, and then when I saw that movie, I was like, dude, I have to be able to do this. This has to be a thing. Yeah. And my dad was rad, and he went and he found the ABA, which was luckily based out of Chandler, Arizona, and we had three tracks within an hour drive. And pretty much from that point until I was 16, I raced almost every weekend. So, Damn, that's crazy. So talk to me about like when and where and how that moves into a professional realm. Uh, I mean, I know nothing about that. I think most people kind of know nothing about that. So how how do you get a sponsor's attention? Um, yeah, like any of that stuff that kind of makes Man, you think, quote unquote a pro. I think the best the best advice that you could give, and it and this goes way beyond being a professional bike rider or fisherman or you know just a professional in general, is that like who you are and how you carry yourself and the friends that you make all, you know, like it's all who, you know, not what, you know, is the, is the old adage. And it's completely 100% true from, from my standpoint in life. Anyways, like the bike riding thing is, you know, I had a bunch of friends growing up that did it. And then friends of friends put them on teams and got them sponsored. And then you kind of get to do the same thing. And so I, like one of my best friends, Ryan Schur, who now owns a bike company, he moved to the East Coast, got put on this bike company called Kink through one of his roommates. And then he, I got a call like a couple months later like, hey, do you want to ride for this bike company? Like I've been telling them about you and they want someone on the West Coast and you're in Arizona and whatever. And I'm like, yeah, of course. Like who would, who would say no to that? You know, like. Man, that's so cool. And it's so good to hear yet another story like that. I, I feel like. But 90% of the people that I interview have something like that that happened in there, you know, and everyone talks about how fortunate they were and that they just got lucky. And obviously, you know, hard work and trying to be in the right place and all that takes, you know, has a lot to do with everything. Um, But yeah, man, uh, like you just said, I mean, people and connections are kind of the most important thing. Yeah. And you want to be that person, you know, like it sounds hard because you don't want to try to be the person that everyone wants to hook up. Right. So like naturally being outgoing and being a good person, like it goes a long ways, you know, like definitely that's, that's a hard thing to tell the kids coming up now, I suppose, is that, you know, like there's (laughs) stop being such an asshole. Yeah. Stop being an (laughs) asshole. Like every, every kid is going to be better than you in 20 minutes, you know, like the sport, and, you know, again, it goes beyond everything. Like, the world is progressing so fast that there's always someone better than you. Yeah, There's definitely. always someone that is going to be better than you or forever, you know. It's it's whatever it is outside of that that puts you into those positions to, you know, make other people want to. Basically, what you're doing as a professional bike rider is that you're just an advertising key, I guess, you know. Like, you want people to try to ride like you or be like you or you know, you're selling product. So uh, tell us a little bit more about your story then. So you get this sponsorship with kink. Is that your, was that your first sponsorship? No, I had like little bike shop sponsorships and stuff before that, just from racing. But you know, like even, even going into that, like I was 17, no, I was older than that. I was like 19 at the time. I just graduated high school. So yeah, I just, I was just riding all the time, you know, like, and I didn't even think of it as something that 
would be anything big. Like I was going to, you know, signing up to go to college. And then I got that phone call from him and it was like, Hey, this is, this is what's going on. And I was like, sweet free bike parts, you know, like I break (laughs) a bike part once a week. So getting bike parts would be awesome. And we always looked up to Ryan because he was like the one of our friends that had made it. And none of us thought that we would get that, you know, like, and then I got that. Yeah. And it kind of just snowballed from there. Like I started traveling a bunch and filming video parts and I got lucky with the, with the group of sponsors that I acquired throughout that career that I never, I never got forced to go to contests. I never got forced to do anything that I didn't do because I wasn't doing it before. It was just whatever I wanted to do was, was good enough. You know, like I would get photos in magazines. I'd get a couple interviews here and there and film video part for those companies and whatever. And that was, that was my job requirement. Yeah. That's awesome, man. So after you started to get how you said that your friend Ryan kind of helped you come up after you, you know, got all of your sponsorships and stuff, were you then able to kind of like, you know, pay it forward and help some of your friends out? Uh, totally. Like one of my, one of my good friends growing up was a few years younger than us. And his name is Sean Sexton. And, you know, like when I got into the position that I could like kind of sway to put people on the team, like he was number one, like he was, he was that kid that I was talking about that could literally do whatever he wanted on a bike. And he was super happy and whatever. And so, you know, by the time that I was old enough and in the position to put someone on the team, like he was, he was a no brainer. He was my first pick. That's awesome, man. That's so cool. And he's kind of evolved into being one of the five best people in the sport. Really? Damn, that's crazy. Yeah, that's right. So talk to me about the lifestyle of being a, a, a pro extreme sports person there i assume like you just already said there's a lot of travel uh like what what do you do all day what like what are you doing oh man i was so i guess the the peak of my career is insane as that sounds because i never really made a whole bunch of money i lived in a house with six other people i went to college full-time basically what riding bikes for a living allowed me to do was not have a job and go to college like Granted, it took me eight years, almost eight and a half years to get a four-year bachelor's degree because of bike riding, but at the same time, I didn't have to work, so I could, when I was in town, I could go to school and focus. Dude, that's awesome, and that's so great that you even did that, you know, and that you didn't just say, forget about school and just try to, you know, ride your bike. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I think if I if I could go back in time, I might pick a side. I feel like I kind of half-assed both sides of it in <laughs> retrospect. But yeah, you know, I did I did get a degree in the long run, and I did also at the same time get to travel to a bunch of insane places, which teach you far more than school ever could in my eyes. Yeah, hell yeah, man, definitely. But yeah, I mean, it's you know, professional bike rider in my tier. Like, I wasn't one of the dudes making a ton of money, going to every contest, traveling the world, like. I never did a bunch of crazy tricks. I just, like I said earlier, I just did what I've, what I had always been doing and it, and it seemed to work, you know? So, you know, you kind of focused on your own niche and just got good at that. Yeah, exactly. Like I just did what, what I thought to me was fun and that's all I really ever focused on. And that's kind of my life motto, so to speak anyway. So, yeah. So yeah, I guess you just, you know, you just learn how to live off of a couple hundred bucks a month and, Get a whole bunch of roommates in Phoenix, which is real cheap, and you can make it work. That's right. <laughs> Bachelor pad and top ramen. Yeah, totally. So talk to us a little bit more about um, the the P- 
pay and the lifestyle part of it. So, um, how and when do you get paid if you become, um, you know, a professional athlete like that? Are you getting checks from sponsors? Do you do like competitions? And it like, is it like, oh, if you win this competition, you get five grand or anything right, like that? Exactly. So the way that it worked for me, I can only speak for me since, I mean, I'm sure I know how it works for other people, but personally, it started off like when I got that phone call from Ryan, I got flowed parts. And so then it progressed from there when I would get photo contingencies. So anytime that I got a, a photo in a magazine, you know, it was broke down into like quarter page black and white was worth 50 bucks. You know, half page is worth 100 bucks. A full page color was 200 bucks. A cover was 500 bucks. That's crazy. And so that's the magazine deciding to put you on there, but then your sponsor is paying you for having gotten into the magazine. Exactly. Exactly. So, you know, and that's the case. So, you know, if that's, if you have that with one sponsor, cool, you made $500 if you got a cover, but say you have 10 sponsors and in a perfect world, you would have a scale that would be, you know, pretty much the same, then you can do the math and that's, that's how you make money in that day and age. Now is different because of web and print is pretty much out of the picture but yeah so that was the case so then you so you get photo contingency and then i got travel budget so i got x amount of dollars to spend per year traveling so basically what i would use that for is if i knew a photographer was going to be in southern california this weekend i would fly out there or drive out there drive obviously since i you know it wasn't very huge budget by any stretch of the imagination but (laughs) And drive out there, shoot photos with that photographer. Hopefully, that photographer would end up putting you in the magazine, and then you would be using that travel budget accordingly. Yeah, for sure. That's basically why that travel budget was implemented. And then from there, you get, like, the next bump was you get a salary. So you get, you know, X amount of dollars per month, and that's like a retainer. And then from there, the next step was I got signature parts. So, like, I had a signature frame. I had signature handlebars. And so what you get from that is you get royalties. So you get percentage of the sales. Now, when you are on a, first of all, that's nuts that you get a percentage of sales. I would have never thought that. Um, but second of all, when you are on, um, retainer like that, or you have a contract like that and you're getting paid a salary, are they, are you like kind of a a made man now? Like you cannot just go to some other company and sign a contract with them. You would have to go over that with that particular sponsor that you are getting a salary from. For sure. Like, I mean, I, I was, I don't want to say was pretty loyal. I was 100% loyal to the brands that I rode for from day one. I never actually even had a contract until the end, you know, like, and it was all word of mouth. It was just like, hey, we're going to give you this for this, and we're going to give you this for this, and that was fine. And I got other offers from companies, but, you know, like they, Kink and Etnies and Odyssey all started giving me product at the same time, and I kind of evolved with them together, and we grew as a person, and we grew as a brand, and I never felt that I really wanted to leave that. So yeah, I never, I never did. So I never had to think about jumping ship and the legalities of breaking a contract, but yeah, I mean, you are, it's like, I would, I would make the relation that today's day and age that you sign that contract and it's like joining the sports team, you know, like you're on that team for a year. Yeah, for sure. If you want to negotiate your contract or whatever you can, but I mean, that, that looks terrible in the eyes of our sport. Like if you, 
if you jump sponsors a bunch, like you just look like a shit bag and you don't want to do that regardless. Like. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> definitely, man. And people, yeah, I mean, people really get to know, uh, like a skater or a rider or whatever it is by their sponsor, you know, like right. they, they really start to associate those things after a while. No, it's a totally harmonious thing. Like, you know, you as a, the, the sponsored athlete is that brand's image and vice versa. Like, you know, like a perfect, you know, we'll use skateboarding since you just said skateboarder, like anti-hero has a very distinct person that they put on the team. Yeah. And that's really the point. same in bikes. Like you're not, you know, like you're not going to, you're not going to have like the super contest dude isn't technically going to ride for some of the companies and vice versa. Yeah. Not that it doesn't happen, but. So, and then on the competition side, you can also get, just get like prize pool money for different things. Yeah, I mean, every all of those contests like the X Games, Gravity Games, you know, back in the day, and Fans Triple Crown and Do Tours now, and the few really cool Red Bull ones, all you know, have a prize purse that if you win, that money's yours, you know. And I remember in the heyday of the X Games and stuff, like companies were matching those checks for riders. Holy crap, that's crazy! So, like, if you were to win an X Games, your major sponsor at the time would match that check so yeah man it's funny because you and i grew up at a different time and it's like i how you were just saying the heyday of the x games like i haven't watched the x games in several and i know that's just me but it's like i it's like it's hard to well that's what i was going to ask you know it's hard to know if things decline or if you're just getting old and you just haven't been paying attention you know i think i think in that aspect it's a little bit of both like when the x games first came out it was the shock value, right? It was this counterculture that no one really knew about, and they and they really put that out onto the mainstream, and and the the general public really took hold of that, and and everyone's kind of jaded on that now. Like, it has to be the next greatest thing, and it has to be you know breaking a world record, and it has to you have to really be fighting for that shock value to get the general the general attention of the public now. Whereas it used to be, you know, I mean, I don't I don't want to make the relation that. The X Games when it started is any different than anything that's happening now, but totally, it's just people's perceptions of the countercultures and the sports are evolving, and they're you know they're educated consumers now. They know what's cool and what's not cool. So for sure, well, plus I mean I imagine that YouTube has just had the most major impact on that, which is why am I going to sit around and watch the X Games for two hours when tomorrow I can just type in like dopest trick from yesterday and all <laughs> right. of a sudden I'll get like this little mini highlight reel of you know the coolest things that happen. Yeah, it's, I mean the 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 digital age and social media, everything sped up that world so much that it's hard to compete. Yeah, yeah, for sure. But it comes back to production value, right? Like, you would hopefully watch the X Games because it looks a lot cooler yeah. than the random shaky flip phone YouTube video. <laughs> <laughs> definitely, definitely, man. So, all right, let's 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 transition into the fishing part. So this is where I'm glad that we just touched on the whole entire aspect of age and getting older. This mm-hmm. is where I was saying that you basically became my hero as soon as I heard about you because <laughs> I, I very much like fishing as well. Um, and I, I grew up fishing with my dad as a kid. And I it's like obviously it's all fine and good to fall off your bike a bunch when you're 18 years old and you know hurt yourself but that's not as easy to take as you get into your 30s not to mention the fact that like you said you have these other 18 year olds coming up that are just going to be 
you know, schooling you, I imagine. (laughs) So like what an awesome thing to go into to like be able to, you know, start transitioning into fishing, which is a very low impact sport and is so (laughs) awesome and so much fun. Um, so how the hell did this all happen? Like, how did you end up getting a sponsor fishing? Man, straight up dumb luck. Um, you know, my story is a lot like yours. I grew up with my dad fishing and camping every weekend and riding dirt bikes. And then he would take me to BMX races and just being super active. And then, you know, when bike riding took over, I kind of stopped fishing for a while. And my dad passed away when I was 18. So I completely stopped fishing. Like he was my fishing buddy. Yeah. So, you know, fast forward when I was starting to realize that I like to do other things other than solely ride my bike, you know, a bunch of friends and I went camping on a camping trip and I went to my parents' house and I went to my mom's and I was digging up all the old fishing stuff just to see if I could still do it. You know, like I only fly fished basically from when I was from a, probably I would say like seven or eight or so about the same time I started riding bikes. I learned how to fly fish. And okay. That's what okay. This is something I, I wanted to ask you about later. So sorry, yeah. keep going, but I <laughs> no, found no, it so it's... interesting that I've seen only photos of you fly fishing. I was like, man, that's so weird. Yeah. So we'll go back to that. But so, you know, when I did that forever and then I got that, cam- that stuff and we went on a camping trip and I caught one fish on the camping trip, like pretty much right away. And I was like instantly back to being hooked. And I was like asking myself, like, why the fuck did I not do this? the last 10 years of my life, you know, like going on all these crazy bike trips. Like I went to New Zealand for 10 days. Like that's the epitome of trout fishing in the world is New Zealand. And I went there for on a bike trip and I could have been fishing as well, you know, like totally just realizing looking back and then I was completely addicted to it again. Like every single moment of the day, I was like looking up where I could go fishing around my house and what I could do. And I started going back to all these spots that I went to when I was a kid, like all these neighborhood lakes in scottsdale where i grew up and golf courses and whatever and just like remembering how much about fishing and fly fishing that i loved and it kind of just snowballed and i went on a couple trips and just documenting it and then it kind of leads back to social media and the new world that i posted a couple photos and i was at work one day and i'm sitting there and i get a random email like hey i have a fly fishing question and you know at the time i was i was getting those questions a lot from like other bike rider kids and BMX people and whatever. And, you know, I kind of would field some of the questions and some of them I would kind of blow off. I didn't know like how, how genuine they were. And I can't sit around all day and talk about fly fishing. (laughs) Yeah. I would rather be doing it. So luckily it was a slow day at work and I didn't have anything to do. So I just sent an email back. I was like, yeah, shoot, you know, like what's your question? And it ended up being the guy by the name of Emiliano Granado who, basically is just a really cool dude in general, but he does a bunch of crazy photography work for some outside magazines, a bunch in the road bike industry. And he's like, Hey, I, I got a client, this company called Reddington. I don't know anything about fly fishing. You look cool and you look like you know how to do it. Do you want to go fishing in Oregon for four days on this river? And I was like, what is this a trick? You know, I'm like, yeah, yeah I'm like, like the, the sultan of dubai ever. trying to give you ten thousand dollars just give yeah, me your bank it was account. like it was i'm like literally like where's the catch you know yeah. like yeah fuck yeah i want to go to the deschutes and float down it for four days and fish like and so basically that trip worked out we went on a trip with a you know looking at it now was a pretty rad group of characters like this dude cole coleman s who does rafa and really rad road bike dude emiliano and Daniel both do this thing now called Yonder Journal, which is like adventure times 10,000. 
on bikes and road bikes and whatever. They also do manual for speed. And then like another group of people that are all pretty rad in the outdoor world. But I was so green in that time that I knew nothing of any of these people. Like I just knew that I was fishing. Yeah. And we went on that trip and I was pretty much the only one on that trip that actually fished, right? Like the rest of us were just there to, to be cool and look rad on the river and shoot <laughs> product shots basically and lifestyle shots for Reddington. And from there, like I ended up, you know, just making the right contacts on that trip. And then it snowballed a year later. I got another random call from the marketing manager at Reddington, like, hey, last minute, but we need someone to basically shoot photos and do a product shoot again in Oregon. We'll fly you up. Are you down? And I was like, yeah, of course. And then from there, it became a little bit more official where, you know, I hung out with that brand manager and the marketing people, and they kind of realized that you know, hopefully that I was someone that was worth investing in. And they were kind of rebuilding the brand from that point on and taking it in a new youthful direction. And they kind of put me on to help that out, so to speak. Yeah. I wanted to ask you about that. Cause I could, it, it, it very much seems like that if you go on their website and then the whole entire video series that they made that, you know, one of the episodes is all about you. It, it, it seems like they're trying to push this whole like youth new way of fishing thing, which is freaking awesome because I have to imagine that the amount of people fishing is declining. Um, and it's great that they're trying to go after a younger demographic. So that is kind of their thing right now is, is getting a younger fishing demographic. Totally. Reddington's Reddington's philosophy on fishing is that it doesn't need to be this crazy grandiose experience. Like you don't need to fly to the Southern tip of Chile to catch a trout you know like there's water everywhere there's fish in pretty much all of those water it's super accessible fly fishing doesn't need to be looked at as this rich man sport which it has been for the last 40 plus years you know like which is ridiculous because it's like the cheapest thing that you could start doing totally i mean they make they make really good product at a really great price and that's what it is like it should be totally affordable for someone in their 20s early 30s to pick up a fly rod and be able to fish whenever and wherever they want. Yeah, definitely. Man. You know, and fly fishing in general has that has that mystique more than anything that it is super expensive and you have to go to these crazy places to do it, and that's that's not necessarily the case. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, talk to us a little bit about, and I'll definitely put a link to your video on my website because I think it's fantastic. And uh, <laughs> talk to us a little bit about urban fishing. It, it's so funny because you mentioned you know fishing with your dad when you were younger, and something that I would never do with my dad because I was always kind of embarrassed. But what we every summer we would go to Palm Springs um, and rent a house on on golf courses out there on PGA West. And every freaking day, my dad would go out, like when the sun was starting to go down, my dad would go out to all the water hazards on the golf course and fish in the water hazards. And like, sometimes I go and like talk to him, but I was like so embarrassed, you know, and like nervous, (laughs) like, dude, you're not supposed to be fishing in here. What are you doing? And you know, it's never, it was never a problem or anything. And then I saw that video of you and you're just fishing and same thing, like water hazards or like in one of the shots you're fishing behind like a car dealership in (laughs) in the middle of like, you know, metropolitan Phoenix. Um, Talk to us about urban fishing and, like you said, just fishing absolutely anywhere. Yeah, I mean, that would, that was part of the being overly addicted to fishing or still being overly addicted to fishing is that, like, you know, I didn't, I didn't have the time to drive three hours to go fish a trout stream in Phoenix, so I would fish whatever water was around. And, you know, I think coming from, from BMX and, I guess, 
being used to doing things illegally, like I was never scared to jump a fence and ride <laughs> someone's backyard pool. Yeah, so why would I point. be scared yeah. to break into a golf course to fish the pond? You know, I'm yeah. going to get kicked out the same. Yeah. Or actually even probably even less because it's not really not a big deal then, you know, yeah, like it's not frowned upon course, as much. Just walk away. Yeah. 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 So it wasn't, I didn't have that, that thing of I'm not supposed to be doing it or this is, this is not accepted, you know, like I just wanted to catch fish and I knew that there were fish in those waters. So why not try to catch those ones? Yeah, man, that's so cool. So what types of fish can people expect to catch in their local neighborhood or their local city? <laughs> what, like, obviously all these things are populated with fish. Is there a kind of more common fish that are used to populate? Yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, they're, they put those ponds on golf courses are put there as water hazard, but they're also making these little swamps that are going to house tons of bugs in vegetation. So most, I don't want to say all, they'll plant carp because carp will basically eat their body weight in vegetation and little, you know, insect larvae per day. And then largemouth bass are pretty easily to, easily readable and those are easy to get. So pretty much I would say that most of those golf course ponds, you could catch carp and bass in every single one of them. So I have never caught a carp before. I, that uh, largemouth bass was the main thing I used to fish for as a kid, and uh, also we would do some trout fishing in, in rivers mm-hmm. while camping. But uh, largemouth bass I always love because I mean they they they're hit aggressive. you know yeah, yeah. they're aggressive. So uh, what what is a carp like? The 180 degrees polar opposite of aggressive. <laughs> it's like a catfish. It just sits there when you hook it. No, even catfish are aggressive. So the thing about carp is that they obviously get really big, right? And that's the main draw is that you want to catch, you know, if you're competitive, like as much a non-competitive person that I think I am, I still want to catch the biggest fish that swims in the water. Mm-hmm. So that's easy. Like you go to those ponds and the canals and whatever around Phoenix, like the biggest fish in them are easily the carp. So carp pose another thing that they're actually probably the smartest freshwater fish as well. They have really big brains, so you kind of, it's like, it turns more into hunting than it is fishing. Like, you're watching the fish, you're stalking the fish, you're trying not to scare the fish. You have to be technically perfect. So, carp fishing in the last five years has really kind of taken off in fly fishing because of those things. It is really hard, and, you know, in fly fishing anyways, you're already picking the hardest way to try to catch fish. So, I guess it only makes sense that you want to catch the hardest fish to catch. I didn't even realize that you could catch big fish while fly fishing. I had always thought, you know, as a kid that you kind of had to use a regular rod if you were going for something heavier. <laughs> yeah, that's a that's a pretty big misconception about fly fishing. Like we caught, you can catch anything from, you know, finger-sized trout and bluegill all the way up to sailfish. And, you know, we caught, we went shark fishing last year in San Diego and we caught a six-foot mako on a fly rod. Damn, that is and that's, a, and that's a small one out there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, I mean, yeah, that's a that's a pretty big misconception. A fly rod can handle anything, and in a lot of cases, it can handle it better. So what advice – well, yeah, you – so first of all, sorry, finish your thoughts. So what? No, just, just based on, you know, like the, the flexibility of the rod, the length, and the, you know, a bunch of technical things, but – yeah, and it, you get to feel everything so much more with a fly rod, right? Because of the yeah, flexibility. Yeah, I think that's a a good a good analogy of why you fly fish. I I relate it to you know everything is about feel. Everything that I've always liked to do is how it makes you feel or the feeling you get, and that is fly fishing. It's it's really hard, and you're connected to the fish, and you're 
fooling the fish out of something that you made with feathers and plastic strands, you know? Yeah. That's it's so the cool, closest man. you can get to, to being the fish. I feel like. Yeah. Yeah. What? Uh, I think it was, was it on your Instagram? It must've been. Cause I can't think of who else's Instagram this would have been on, but you were making some sort of fly. Was it like with dog food or something like that, that you realized <laughs> that these, the fish were really into that's on that. That's on that video. Um, no, like I got lucky that one of my mentors, basically when I got really back into fishing was this guy by the name of Manny Chi and he already had carp figured out. So he lived on these lakes growing up and he realized that the carp were sitting under these trees and they would eat, they would eat these olives that fell out of the trees. So he came up with this fly that looked like those olives. And so one day I was fishing those same ponds and they're right backed up onto this neighborhood. So there's people out there and they feed all the ducks and they feed them bread and they feed them whatever. And the fish, the fish key in on that thing as well, like the same way that the birds do. So, you know, you know, the olive kind of, you just tie it in a different color. It'll look like a piece of bread. And then one day I went and there was a guy throwing dog food into the water. And so I went home and I was like, it's literally the same fly just scaled down that Manny had already perfected. But I was just like, well, if he's throwing dog food in, I'm going to make it look like dog food. You know? <laughs> Definitely. You know, it's it's funny because in fly fishing, you are, you know, the, the term is match the hatch. So, you know, that relates to bugs hatching and insect life. But in carp fishing and bass fishing, they don't eat bugs. They eat, I mean, carp eat everything. They do eat bugs. They eat other fish. They eat literally everything that's in the water. But you want to match what they're keyed and honed in on that day. And if it's dog food, I guess you got to be prepared. Dude, I love it. What uh, what other piece of it? So let's say someone was wanted to get started fishing um, for the first time right now. Yeah, I mean, as like a new ambassador to the sport, like what what advice would you give somebody who wanted to try fishing? Nah, just go do it. I mean, there's so much to learn. It's like a never ending snowball, fly fishing especially because there's the mechanics of learning how to actually cast, and that's a big thing, and that kind of turns people off. Like it's it is different than conventional fishing, but that's a sport in itself is casting and that casting is super addicting. And once you figured it out, there's nothing like it. The feeling of a perfect laid out cast is, is, you know, next level. Yeah. And then from there, one before you even caught a fish. Yeah, exactly. You know, so there's all these little, these little hurdles to jump over and little victories. But, you know, from there you learn about, you know, if you're trout fishing, you end up learning about entomology and the larval stages and nymph stages all the way up to adults and flying around and then when they land back in the water and lay their eggs and die like you you learn every single stage so you can look at the water and know exactly what the fish are eating just basically based on that like if they're for example if you see the back of a fish come up when they're rising and not the head that means they're eating an emerger so they're eating a nymph that's coming through the water column to hatch on the water surface dang if you see their mouth, that means they're eating the adult. So they're eating the ones that are actually on the water surface. Yeah. I mean, that's just, you know, like just basically scanning the water and learning that you can learn exactly all of those entomology stages. And you want to, you know, it goes back to matching the hatch is that you want to tie the fly or put the fly on that is matching exactly what they're eating. Do you feel that since you have started fishing and, and you started noticing all these, you know, really observing the fish closely like that does it have you observing other areas of nature more as well oh for sure i mean that's probably the best part about fishing and especially fly fishing like 
you said earlier where it's like a pretty non-impact sport and I kind of chuckled to myself. I'm like, man, I get hurt all the time fishing. Like, <laughs> Because fly fishing is you're constantly moving. Like if you're fishing a river, you're not just standing in one spot drinking a beer with your line in the water like a lot of, a lot of people would think that you are when you're fishing. Yeah. I'm like, if I go fish a river, I park at one spot and I hike, you know, probably, you know, on average two, three, five miles up the river, depending on how much time I have. Yeah. So, I mean, you're, you're constantly moving and you're, when you're out there, like I always kind of say to myself that I need to look up and around and realize where I'm at and take that in because when I'm fishing, I'm so focused on, what are the fish eating? What are the fish doing? Where are the fish are going to be? How am I going to get to that hole? You know, trying to trying to put those puzzle pieces together to be the most successful that I can on that trip. Or sometimes, man, you got to just sit there and take it all in. But everything <laughs> kind of does relate to the fishing. Like if it's windy, it's going to be blowing bugs into the water. That's good to know. If it's if it's cloudy, a certain bug will hatch. If it's not cloudy, a certain bug won't hatch. You know, like. All of those things play a part in in successfully catching fish that you don't really think about before you're involved in that world, but that's kind of what it becomes. Yeah, totally. Do you feel like any of your your skills from earlier in in life, like any any skills that you learned from BMX, have translated um, to fishing? Patience is probably the the biggest thing. Like learning a trick on a bike obviously takes patience. Catching a fish takes more patience than I have most of the time. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's, it, you know, there's a lot of similarities that you can relate to all of that, you know, and, and even, you know, we'll go back to like being a brand ambassador and being a sponsored bike rider. Like the, the two seem so different in one's super, you know, counterculture and one's, you know, perceivably an old man, but you know, now that I'm in it, I joke all the time. I'm like, I go on a fishing trip and I get picked up in a white van just like I did when I was on a BMX trip from the airport. And we go out and we go to these pretty rad spots. And instead of me, like, trying to do tricks all day on a set of trails or at a skate park, like, I just get to hike up a river and hopefully try to catch fish. Yeah, for sure. But honestly, it's pretty much the same exact thing. Like, it's there's not much different. It's just a different, it's just a different medium, so to speak. Yeah, man, that's so cool that you've gotten you know, such a good long career out of this and more ahead of you now, you know? Yeah, hopefully. So why don't you leave us off with just kind of like one piece of overall advice that you would give people if they maybe wanted to get started with, I don't know, like anything on the professional level, like you were able to do. Yeah. I think, you know, it goes back to what we initially talked about and that, you know, to get anywhere in life is just be a good person, you know, make the right friends, and then you got to really pick your life philosophy. Like I've really from day one, pretty much picked that I wanted to do the things that were going to make me happy. And then hopefully monetarily that would work itself out. And, you know, at 33, it has so far, you know, granted I could have quit and went on a different career path and with the objective of making a ton of money, but I don't really think that a ton of money would have made me any happier. Definitely like not. A, yeah. I've gotten to do exactly what I've wanted to do my entire life. And, and I really think that that's the fork in the road, so to speak, because that, you know, you got to pick one side or the other and you just got to stay true to you and everything else should, and hopefully will work itself out. Hell yeah, man. Amen to that. Wise words. <laughs> thank you, dude. Casey, thank you so much, man. We really appreciate it. No, I think again for having me, it was been awesome.
Hey everyone, it's Blake. If you want to check out the video that we mentioned in the show of Casey fishing throughout Arizona, which I highly recommend, just head over to halfhourintern.com and on Casey's episode, there are links to that video as well as other things that we discussed in this episode. Thank you so much for listening.